that I was lied to my entire life and would have been lied to until my death, it makes me furious that I was given improper medical information and ancestral information made me feel like I was worthless and that my intuition was like completely squashed made me feel just toxic. Hello, you are listening to NPE Stories. This is a podcast where NPEs can share their story. I am your host, Lily, and I found out I was an NPE through an ancestry DNA test that changed my life forever. NPE is a term that stands for not parent expected or non-paternal event. This means that one or more of our parents are not who we believe them to be. NPE Stories is a podcast where NPEs can share their story of what their original family was like, how they found out they were an NPE, and what their journey has been like since the day they found out. Welcome to episode 77. If you are an NPE, chances are you have received a handful of strange and unsupportive responses to your DNA surprise. In fact, I bet some of you have received some responses that are downright hateful. I'm sorry for that. I'm also sorry for the silence of nothing being acknowledged at all. I created this podcast as a safe space for NPEs to share their experience. I like to think of this place as a fellowship of nodding heads. I know I get so much out of listening to others and their stories, and we are going to listen to one now. Today, I am speaking with Don. Hi, Don. Hi, Lily. It's nice to meet you. <laughs> Likewise. I've been listening <laughs> to you for a while. And I'm following you now on Instagram, and uh, you're funny, by the way. <laughs> You're oh, funny. you think so? Well, thank you. <laughs> Just from my Instagram, you're figuring that out? No, from your emails, you scared me as soon as you said um, you'd put on lipstick and that you're <laughs> when you were wondering if we were going to do a video today, I was like, please no, please no video. <laughs> like, Girl, I put on lipstick for you <laughs> and we're not doing video. <laughs> no, it's fine. But it is nice to meet you and... Uh, Thank you so much for being willing to share your story today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. And can we take a moment to recognize you for all the good you are doing for the NPE community? It's um, You open doors for a lot of healing for a lot of people. And I just want to take a minute to say thanks to you for that. Well, that's sweet. Oh, well, thank you. And you're welcome. Since you know the format of how this goes, let's go ahead and get right into your story today. So why don't you go ahead, start from the beginning and tell me about your family of origin and what your childhood was like. Well, it was a dark and stormy night. Um, I was born in Scranton, Pennsylvania. I think my parents were 22, or I'm sorry, 23 and 24 when I was born. I was the first of two girls uh, in the family that I grew up with, and I'm five and a half years older than my younger sister. Um, my parents weren't married when I was conceived, and then my birth certificate dad was actually at the time engaged to, if I'm here, if I'm remembering correctly, a good friend of my mom's. And the story goes that he and my mom 
my, my birth certificate dad and my mom were friends in high school. And then after high school, he came back from the service. They had a little get together, I guess, and uh, she got pregnant and he broke off his engagement to this other girl and married my mom. So that's the short version. There's a lot of details about this that I just don't share publicly, but that about sums it up in a nutshell. My mom had a working class background and her parents were super hard workers. They didn't have a ton of education, but they were smart and they were funny and I loved them. And I was extremely close to them as a child. And, you know, I think my grandma was the first woman I ever knew who owned her own business. Uh, she was a seamstress and she ran a custom drapery factory in this little tiny house. There must have been, her workroom must have been like seven feet by seven feet. And she had these huge industrial drapes for like um, theaters and stuff. She was amazing. And then my grandpa was an office manager for a factory in the garment industry. And I mean, I just have such good memories of them. I would go and work with him on Saturdays and he'd be in the office and I'd just run out and up and down these huge rows of sewing machines and industrial size bolts of fabric and this just this just weird like kind of haunted light i loved it my mom at that time in the 60s she had decided she had gone to nursing school and decided against it and um so i feel like that has something to do the era and the time in which i was conceived and born and and um like opportunity and options have a lot to do with my mom's story but i'm not going to tell that story because that's her story it's just how i'm trying to compassionately think about um things from this end you know um my birth certificate's dad's father was a teacher and a coach and he died when i was a kid and we were never close and then his mom his my grandma his his my BC, my birth certificate dad's mom was lovely. She was a lovely woman. Um, I always felt a little disconnected from her. Like she was maybe less invested in me, not only when compared to how my other grandparents were, but when compared to the other grandkids who eventually came along, you know, we weren't close, which confused me as a kid and which made me feel like something was my fault you know like it's always my fault which is that's 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 my that's my uh default setting is oh it's something i did right she was very very kind and a very lovely lady but you know um i just noticed that from very early on anyway it was like coal country eastern pennsylvania and i think my dad wanted out you know he was ambitious he studied accounting at a junior college and started to work his way up um the white collar ladder, which means we began relocating for promotions and jobs that he got. And he was a super hard worker. You know, um, I remember he would, he taught me to put off what you desire right now for what you need in the future. You know, um, I remember my mom told a story about, um, when I was a baby, um, he worked like he had to travel and stay away for the week when he worked and he'd come home on weekends and he'd come home and they were so broke. They would have to roll coins, like dig up spare change from the bottoms of pockets and my mom's purse and couch cushions and stuff just to get him turnpike money so he could return back to work on money. So super poor starting out, very hardworking. Um, we had a modest life and I'm actually really proud of that. So, you know, we moved from like a dumpy apartment to another dumpy apartment to a slightly nicer apartment to a decent apartment to a rental duplex with a yard to a townhouse, which they owned, to a ranch house with a nice yard and a really nice neighborhood and good schools. And then uh, finally, when I was around 12, um, my dad got his final like uh, relocation with this, job, with this company uh, to Florida, which is where we lived um, 
for the you know rest of my growing up time. I've lived other places, but I'm a Floridian and I consider Florida my home. Uh, Florida is also where my family fell apart. Um, was they when I was about twelve they divorced. So the downs, the the upsides of these moves is I got to watch this man work really really hard for his family, you know. And the downside is that we moved maybe. I don't know, every two, two and a half years or something. And I'd leave friendships I'd made and then I'd start over and then I'd meet more friends and then get to know them and then we'd leave. And it's kind of like being a like a military brat, only there were no other military brat kids with similar experiences to commiserate with. And I, I don't mean to um, be negative about military brat. I'm just using it as a term. I respect it. Um, but I think this permanently affected like my friend skills and my desire to invest my emotions and friendships, you know, it's something I'm working on. So on the surface, it was okay. I was a super sensitive kid though. You know, my parents were very nice. I had clothes, I had food, we had safe housing that grew increasingly nicer every few years. You know, I was taught manners. I was taught morals. I did my homework. We sat down to dinner as a family. We had good nutrition. I mean, it was the seventies. So, I mean, there was like, a lot of Kool-Aid and, you know, 70s food, but it was the 70s. (laughs) You know, we had some family routines on Sunday nights. We'd watch like um, Walt Disney Presents. I think that's what it was called. And we'd have like grilled cheese sandwiches and tomato soup on TV trays in the the family room. And it was nice, you know, Um, we weren't spoiled, but it was nice. They, we, they didn't give us too much, but I'm grateful for that. And they, they made sure that I had the things that I needed. You know, I was really into music and, they got me a little record player and then eventually they helped me to um, take piano, uh, not piano. Uh, that was kind of a Freudian slip. I really wanted to play piano, but that was out of the question because of our moves. So I played clarinet and they supported my music lessons and stuff. But the other side of this experience is something that I don't believe my younger sister recognizes today. And I don't actually believe she experienced it herself, likely because she was too young for any of us to register. She might've, you know, she was a kid when we did some of those moves, some of those moves she wasn't alive for. And then she was probably seven or something, seven or so when they divorced. So by the time she was old enough to think in terms of recognizing dysfunction, what does that be? Like 12, maybe 13. When do we start recognizing that? Yeah. I was out of the house and I was gone. So I left when I was 17. So I think a lot of it, like the stuff that upset me either tapered off because it involved me. Um, and it also could be, they were very comfortable with not really talking about anything profound or deep or painful. That was really very, very good at burying things and just not talking about them. So I think her experience within that family was different from mine. And as a result now, it could be why she has trouble with my having trouble with my own NPE experience, you know? So at this point, you know, we're not, we're not speaking. It's all come out. Everyone knows and, and we're not speaking. Um, which is sad. I don't like to let things slide and I don't like things to be wrong. When something's wrong, I want to fix it. I want to talk about it. I want to address it, you know, and that's got to be annoying, but that's how I am. I want to get to the bottom of it. I want to understand the psychology behind things, why we do the things we do, you know, why, why do, why do we behave the way we behave, you know, and this family doesn't seem to be like that. Um, I do remember a lot of, like there was drinking and there was a lot of tiptoeing around the morning after a party. There was a lot of gauging how my parents were before I talked to them or asked for something. There's a lot of, I call it hangover awareness. Like I was just very careful, very, a lot of eggshells. I walked on eggshells mostly with my father, you know, and there were some strange vibes that made me feel like my dad was like, I'm trying to think of the right word, 
suspicious is probably not the right word, but like, just like he doesn't trust her. You know, I always felt awesome that like he was waiting for my mom, like the other shoe to drop with my mom for something, you know, they would have an argument and then my dad would blow up and my mom would slam a door and no one would talk to anyone for two or three days. You know, some kids can probably brush that off, you know, you know, you get a hearty kid who just likes to play and they are in their own world and they're doing fine. But I just remember walking on eggshells all the time. I was super, super sensitive and it was personally hard for me to, to live. I don't feel like I thrived, you know? Um, I didn't have it bad, but I developed a lot of anxiety and a lot of like OCD behaviors that got recognized as OCD later. But in the beginning, during when it was happening, I was really, I was just weak. You know what I mean? I, I, my birth certificate father eventually told me once he admitted that he knew I, he believed I wasn't his from the beginning, that he thought he knew who my biological father was and he knew the guy and he blamed my anxiety on bad genes. Like, cause the guy had had some depression or some anxiety or something like that. And that, that guy wasn't my father, but he, like he had made up his decision pretty on that pretty early on that, that, my stock was not good, I think. And that may contribute to the the reason why I don't feel like he was invested. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. You know, I also remember um, constantly chasing his approval and just chasing his love. And I never felt able to catch it. I tried hard. You know, I felt like he looked down on me. I sometimes feel like he was extra hard on me. But although my sister's experience, she was probably hard on her too. And I just you know, either wasn't there for it or blocked it out. I know his father had been hard on him as a firstborn. His dad was really hard on him. So for a while, I'd assumed it was kind of an echo of like learned behavior. And this is how, based on our trauma, firstborns will treat their firstborns because they don't know what they're doing. But I don't think that was quite it. You know, um, I think a lot of NPEs can say that everywhere we go, someone makes a comment about how we look. And more likely how we don't look like the family we're with. And this happened to me all the time. Um, I looked very different from them. There were there were very often mailman jokes. You know, my mother's petite and my birth certificate father and my sister have this beautiful, like dark olive skin. They tanned beautifully, they have straight black hair, like these bright green eyes, very unique, prominent arched eyebrows. And my sister's lovely you know, and my dad was super striking. Um, and everyone seemed to comment on how tall and skinny I was compared to the rest of the family. So I'm a woman, but I am six foot one, you know, and I am very lean naturally. And it's just the way, that's the way my body works. Right. Um, but my hair was blonde when I was a kid and I got sunburned and it was super big, bushy hair. Right. It just didn't look like anything. Like my mom just cut it short because they didn't know what to do with it. We brushed it out. So it was like, um, like at times like almost like an Afro, you know, which is beautiful, but it didn't fit in with anyone in my family, you know, and that like, like, I don't think people ever had bad intentions, but even when we went back to Pennsylvania to visit family, even family commented, and it's kind of like a water torture that just drop, 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 drop at a time for years. And it can just really cause problems for your, your identity and contribute to, I don't know, genealogical bewilderment. Um, and I started to have this awareness of being different once my little sister was born and I saw how she just looked just like him, you know, a carbon copy. And, and, and I feel like they had a lovely relationship, although he was tough and he was tough on her. I think the two of them had that genetic connection, which makes you inclined to hold on through tough times. You know, you're a tribe. 
And in terms of father-daughter things, I saw them doing things I wished I could have done. And each time, each year we had an opportunity, each time we had an opportunity and didn't work, it like just split us further apart. And I ended up being very jealous of my little sister. So I have a lot of regret over that, but, you know, she was a little kid, but I'm thinking back, I was kind of also a little kid, you know? Um, When I was about nine, I found my parents' marriage certificate in a box and I did the math between their wedding date and my birth. And it was like, I don't know, six and a half months or something like that. And there was one point. I asked my mom if my dad was my real dad because I was just so frustrated. I was like, what else can it be? It, can't, it must be it's this. You know, I remember her saying, shame on you. And it did shame me. I had, then, I, then from that point, I had shame whenever I thought of this. But I thought of it a lot, you know? So I felt a lot of shame, like constantly thinking about it. And then I would feel bad for thinking about it. And then I would try not to think about it, which would make me think about it. But there was this feel like, after all he's done for you kind of thing. You know, and I felt terrible, kind of similar to that dynamic that adoptees wrestle with, you know, when they're told they should be grateful for being adopted. Mm-hmm. You know, I felt that in some way, you know, and I do remember looking at like men, like when we went home to Pennsylvania, I would look at, I'd see a tall guy who looked, I don't know, vaguely blondish and, you know, pink and whatever, thinking maybe that could be my dad. Maybe this guy's my real father. You know, I even did this with famous people, Lily. I, I, when I was in high school, I, I um, I thought this of Robert Plant, the singer for Led Zeppelin, at one point because he's the only guy I found on the planet who had my hair. Mm-hmm. You know, so I even looked up their U.S. tour dates during the nineteen late nineteen sixties to see if it could be possible. And I was just going bananas with this thought. You know, so it's just I've always been aware of of being so different. You know, um, when I was about thirteen, I think I was thirteen, my parents split. And then my mom was the one who moved out. And um, I asked them, like some kids do, it took a lot of guts. I asked them why they were getting divorced. And my father told me to ask my mother. And no one ever answered that. And I'm sure now this is absolutely private information that parents are not required to tell children when they get a divorce. But I felt like something fishy was going on, you know? And the origin of this question was that I believed it was my fault. Like my presence had somehow ruined everything or that my father had finally found out that it wasn't his and this is what had caused the breakout, breakup, you know. Um, I later found out there had been a lot of other things, um, you know, people coping with hard stuff in their lives. They have unhealthy coping mechanisms and, you know, other people beside me had trauma that they brought to their lives too, you know, and I'm not going to really talk about it. But I was left with this man who didn't treat me that well. And it didn't appear, and worse, didn't appear to think much of me. You know, my mom met another man and started living with him. She later married him, and he became a really good stepfather to me. But at that time, um, by the time, you know, I don't know, I was probably 14, 15, I was really angry. And I didn't want to have anything to do with them because, like, I don't know, I just didn't want to. And there was also a lot of alcohol, and there was pot. And on my dad's side, there were a lot of women. He was free to start dating and partying after the divorce. and. Um, you know, there's just a lot of stuff that um, it's really easy to lose track of what the kids are doing, even though you're fully functional as an adult and you're basically a good parent and you show up to work and the mortgage gets paid. But I feel like uh, I kind of raised myself after a certain point, you know. So around 16, my dad and I got in a fight and I don't remember what it was about. I, I, I don't know if I want to remember, but I've tried to remember and I can't. And he hit me in the face. 
Um, and then he told me it was time for me to move out. That's the basic version I can remember. Um, I'm sure I was a little brat, but whatever. Um, I moved in with my mom and that was the point where my dad and I just stopped having any kind of relationship at all. And I kind of gave up with him and it, and it kind of broke my heart, you know, um, he didn't pay for my college, which is fine. I'm not boohooing this, but he paid for my sisters and it made me feel like I wasn't worth investing in, you know, and we almost never spoke in a meaningful way after that point. And there, I don't know, I just felt like I had less value than other people in his life, you know, and I don't know if he had regret about this. He may have, but I know it bothered me a lot. And I feel like, could be wrong, but I feel like the understanding within the family was the breakdown in that relationship was somehow my fault. You know, um, I have an extraordinary amount of sadness when I think about my family of origin. Nothing ever felt right. And I feel ungrateful for not feeling like it was right. This dysfunction leaked into my first marriage and ended in, you know, it ended in divorce. We have three beautiful kids and I'm very grateful to my ex-husband. But um, even though I was a good mom, I was kind of a broken person until I hit my 30s. You know, I met my, I call him my second husband just to keep him on his toes, <laughs> but he's my final husband. <laughs> I hit my 30s and 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 um and met him and uh, really started to work. No, I don't call him my second husband. I call him my current husband. <laughs> <laughs> That's what keeps him on his toes. But... <laughs> But I just felt super sad. And one of the things I'm working on now, because I'm trying to really be present every day and find good in life and find and be positive and, and kind of trying to reprogram myself, uh, is to work on not feeling sadness for what is over because it's over. It happened and it's over. And that is absolutely a work in progress. Some days I'm great and some days I wallow. So I'm still working on it. So how did you find out you were an NPE? Well, by around 2017, let me make sure my math is right. 2017, yep, I had, I was trying to move past everything. I was just trying to be positive. So, you know, I had kind of convinced myself that I was a jerk for having thought that my dad wasn't my dad, that I had, you know, caused such personal turmoil. And I had, you know, I had been the one to break up my relationship with my dad, you know, even though. I have had many years and many discussions with family members, even my children had noticed as they got older, that any relationship that we did have, any kind of social, you know, holiday stuff, any kind of contact I had with him, I had to be the one to do it. So he never called. And, you know, I talked to my sister about this sometimes, sometime, maybe more, probably more than once because I griped about it because it, it felt terrible, you know, and she's like, eh, he doesn't call me anyway, either. You just have to call him. You have to be the one. So I feel like he was the kind of person you had to, you had to initiate contact with, or it just never would happen. Like he just didn't think about it. Maybe he didn't think about it. It wasn't important to him. Perhaps I don't know what it was, but I had felt so bad about it. And I was trying to let that go. And 2015, I had a near death experience, um, that ended up being pretty profound. I, I had a, I had Lyme disease. I got bit by a tick. I got really sick. And then I had, it affected my heart. Then I had a like a very sudden, dangerous cardiac arrhythmia. Um, and I ended up ICU and surgeries and cardioversion, all this stuff. And it was really scary. And oh, wow. when I came out, I'm totally 100% fine now. Like I'm wonderful now. But that experience um, of 
I don't know, I looked into the abyss there, you know, um, I popped out of the body, I came back. And that's another story for maybe some other other podcast, if I ever tell it, which I probably won't, but it I was trying to um, work on my outlook in life, mm-hmm. you know, and my husband was also uh, had gotten cancer and he was recovering from a really difficult cancer treatment at the time. And um, I had a book coming out, you know, so there's pressure there. My kids were mostly grown, doing really, really well. So I was just trying to turn over New Leaf and try to just wanted to be there for my husband, focus on this book coming out and let, you know, heal from my 2015 trauma. I woke up on the table during a surgery where they had mm-hmm. stuff in my heart. So it was just a very weird thing. But um, I was recovering from all of that. Um, and I had I'd always done, I would always like genealogy. Which is funny because that's what all the NPEs I talk to think. Like we're the we're the ones who care, right? And we're spend years doing other people's family histories, thinking it's ours and it's not. I remember being in elementary school with a a family tree that I was filling out, and you know my my dad's side, my birth certificate dad's side. Oh, we're Dutch and we're Welsh and we're all this stuff. I'm like, oh, okay, that's great. We're Dutch and we're Welsh, and um, we're wasp. We're you know white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. That's who we are. That's our identity. And I was like, okay, that's who we are. That's great. And I filled it out and I stuck to it, and you know, ended up not being that at all. But we'll get to that. But um, when Twenty Three and Me came out, I was very interested in doing it, and I think my Mama either had done it or was going to do it or whatever. I think my sister at the time was interested in doing it. So it's kind of a thing. So we were all doing it. So for Father's Day, (laughs) I got it for my dad as a gift. And I can say I really didn't intend anything by it. Though in hindsight, it's super Freudian, right? Hmm. Like I say, I believe I'm ready to let this all go now. And then I give this thing as a gift to this person, you know? (laughs) Like there was nothing overt in what I was doing. I didn't mean to do it, but I did it. And he sent it off and he did it. And he got his results back. And we found that we shared zero centimorgans. And and uh, that was one time in his life when I actually drove to his house. He had moved to, F- to Florida near where we were and near very close to like about five minutes from my sister's house. And he um, had come down with cancer. So he was ill at the time. It was just diagnosed. And I drove to his house. I didn't even call. I just drove there. And when I he opened the door. I just said, Hey, I know. And he just, this look came over his face. That was pain for me. And that's the only time I really saw that. And, and, um, he just hugged me and, um, that goes a long way to me getting a glimpse into, you know, the, an idea that he just wasn't this callous person who hated my guts. Like, I think he was a guy who didn't know how to handle it, you know, but, uh, um, and I was grateful for that, but I was also these old emotions that I think oh, I'm super Zen. I'm controlling all this stuff. I did not control them one bit. These were buried. They shot out like a volcano. Shame. The memory of these comments about my looks, the fact that it made sense that I was taller than my dad by the time I was 13 years old, the endless questions, silence, not feeling wanted, not feeling like I belonged. All this rushed on me. And it was like, really, it was rage. I realized, realized like I hadn't been wrong my whole life. I hadn't been too sensitive. I hadn't been weak. I hadn't been defective with bad genes. I hadn't, none of that. I had been gaslit. Mm. You know, it was a lifetime of these lies when I knew all along and was told all along, nope, that's not right. You're not right. You're wrong. And then it was no problem with anyone making 
are allowing me to feel bad when I brought the truth up, you know? They just let it go because it probably worked better for their story than for mine, and I, it would have caused trouble. So they just buried it and hoped I'd shut up. And I did, you know, for a long time, 40-some years. So I eventually confronted my mom via text because I couldn't even speak with her. I was angry. And then she said what a lot of NPE moms say. What do they say? You want to guess? Oh, uh, gosh, I'm just listening so deeply. No, oh. um, uh, I had no idea. Yeah, well, close. That's That came second. The DNA, that's, DNA test must be wrong, right? Oh, oh it's wrong. Right. The science is wrong. And then they realize they can't argue science. They say, I had no idea. What a surprise. This is as shocking to me as it is to you, you know? And I understand I'm not mocking anybody who does that, um, although we all have that experience, so there's something wryly funny about it. But it's also, I'm sure it's it's a shock when they get busted and they don't know what to say because they've never thought they'd had to deal with it. They thought they'd buried the body, basically, you know. And this was at the point where um, my family fell apart. I just felt my parents had been long divorced. Um, I refused to do this dysfunctional dance anymore. And there was a lot of it, like playing my role so everyone could keep things under the rug, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Outwardly, I started to draw some hard boundary lines and I just refused to play the game. I'm not going to be the scapegoat. I'm not going to be the whipping post. I'm not the whipping, the whipping boy, the whipping boy, is that what it was? I'm not going to do those things. Um, There's a lot involved in these decisions and I'm definitely not trying to malign anyone in my family because I have living family members and I respect them. But inwardly, I was wrecked. You know, when I say I wanted to die, I'm not lying to you. Non-NPEs have trouble understanding how hard this can be, you know. Um, I got a therapist right away and started seeing her, which was wonderful. And then my husband was like, unbelievable. This guy's going through cancer treatment and he's helping me, you know. And um, just just a spoiler alert, he's, he's wonderful. He's fine. He's cancer-free. His life is good. We're really super happy with things. Um, but at this time it was extremely difficult, you know, um, I remember taking my dog for a walk the day after I found out, like the day after, probably the day after I texted my mom and, you know, I took her to a park and we were walking every time. It's just like childhood. I walked past, uh, like an older man who could be roughly in that age range. I'm like, maybe you're my father. Are you my father? You're tall. Maybe you're my father. And it was such a yucky feeling, you know? And then, um, I did not waste any time, probably 24 hours before I like, I need to find this man. You know, I was 49 at the time and I, and I, and I do have these kind of obsessive, like compulsive thoughts that don't stop these uh, intrusive thoughts. And and I, and my thought immediately became, I'm going to run out of time and he's going to die while I'm looking for him, you know? Um, And behind that was, he's already dead. He could already have been dead. You know, a lot of people have this, this answer to their to their mystery when they find out that, you know, their, their father's deceased. I mean, there was a Vietnam war then, and there was all this stuff happening. So it really was a possibility, you know, he would have been in his seventies, early seventies. So he could be dead, but I was obsessed with the idea that he would die while I was looking for him. You know, that thing when you're like that image of somebody's like dying of thirst and they're just crawling across the desert and they die mm-hmm. right before they get to the oasis. That was the image I had in my mind. You know, and I know it sounds like I'm putting a lot of weight on, you know, meeting this person, like it was going to solve all my problems, you know, but I thought that like I, I was, I had hope for that. I started to look for my biological father 
and it was this obsessive 40 plus hour per week search to find him. Um, so the first thing I did was, you know, I looked up how to find a biological parent if you're adopted, you know, and I sent off for my heritage. I sent off for ancestry. I'd already done 23andMe. I uploaded my 23andMe to GEDmatch. And then um, when all these results started coming in, I found some names that were consistent among the three testing sites and GEDmatch, super Irish names, you know, and at some point my mom gave me a name. So I bought a book on, I actually bought a book on how to be a private investigator and read this book, and then bought the subscription services that the PIs use. You know, I wrote letters. I cold called people. Um, the surname my mother gave me was unusual. I'd actually never heard it before, not in television or anything like that. It was strange. And if you look it up, um, there aren't many of them in the U.S. So it, it narrowed the search down. So it wasn't like it was like Smith or Jones or, you know, whatever. It was it was unusual. Um, so it was a little bit easier for me to start paring down the names. And I, I started looking at the names that were connected um, to Northeastern U.S. And, you know, I would go through older records that I can find of people's phone numbers and what. And if they started in Pennsylvania, that might have been a good clue. Because, you know, you can start out somewhere and then end up anywhere. You can be living anywhere 20 years later. Um, but it seemed like most of the people with that name came from Pennsylvania area. Um, so I found some social media accounts for children and grandchildren of these people. Um, and one guy with that name had been like an artist. He was a painter. And I called up the university where he'd worked and found a friend of his. And they were very kind and called me back. And um, they said, nope, it is absolutely impossible. He was a loner. He lived with his parents his whole life. Um, never married, never had kids, never, you know, never dated that we knew, et cetera. Uh, another guy was a, uh, a CEO of a really huge, well-known company. Like you'd know the name if I said it. And um, another was this prominent neurologist in New York City. Um, another one had the last name with a different first name. And Lily, it was a serial killer. <laughs> so oh, no. I have someone with that last name. It, 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 there is someone with that last name who was a serial killer. Um, and and um, so. All I remember thinking of is I'd almost rather it be the serial killer than this big time CEO because as a CEO, he's going to think I'm money grubbing and there's no way he's going to want to even talk to me because he thinks I'm going to want some of the wealth. You know, it obviously wasn't serial killer had been dead. So it wasn't, I was making a joke, but um, I actually hoped it wasn't the CEO because we didn't look alike. Um, and also I just thought there's no way I'd, I'd get behind that firewall of whatever protection. The guy's very big. Um, um, and also, you know, we didn't look alike, but I also was in that weird, like questioning space of wondering what it feels like to look like someone. So I, I questioned every time I see a picture of somebody, I mean, like, do I actually maybe look like them and I'm just face blind and can't see what it feels like? I don't recognize what it's like to see my face in someone else, you know, like my kids don't even look like me. So I just have never really seen that. So my daughters who are grown now got in on um, some of the searching and we would, they're all in, one's in a different country and one's in a different part of this country. And so we're all like Facebook stalking people and sharing photos back and forth and comparing side by sides and stuff. And um, a lot of them just didn't make sense. There was one that might have, you know, um, but I did find one man with a name who was from the same town where I was born, ding, 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 but he had zero online presence. Nothing. 
and he had two daughters who had almost zero online presence, and each of the daughters was married, and their spouses had zero social media online presence. Like nothing. They were literally, they were locked down. <laughs> it was, I was like, it's, there's somebody in this family that must work for something high, high up in wow. the government or something, or somebody who knows something about security, and then they've made everybody stay off social or something. It was, a, it was practically a dead end. So I did have, from one of the subscription services, a phone number. But because he was a, from where I was from, my town, I was afraid to call it because I like, this could be the guy. And now what do I do? You know, at this point I was super fragile. Family was not really talking to me. I felt terrible about it. I refused to do the dance anymore. Things were super different. My husband was recovering from cancer. And to top it off, um, my the vitreous in both my eyeballs detached from the backs of my eyes. And I was having all these vision problems, you know. Um, my retinas were at risk of detaching, which, you know, can cause blindness if you don't get them fixed right away. And, you know, I saw this retina specialist. And as soon as I saw him, of course, he asked for medical history. Because if I had a family history of glaucoma or retinal detachment, they would go in and tack the retinas down and do a preventative surgery on both the eyes because I would have a high risk of the retinas detaching. But if I didn't have a family history, I was at about the same risk as anyone else of detachment and wouldn't need a surgery. So, you know, um, I call it, I lovingly call it that time when my retinas almost detached from stress, <laughs> oh my gosh. but I didn't have a medical history and I couldn't give any information to the doctor. So my husband, who is a prince, wrote a script and called the man for me, you know, um, we had a dialogue that would cover all the facts, would not offer any accusations. It was something like, hey, my name's blankety blank. I'm calling from my wife who's looking for information about some family history. Super nebulous, right? Um, I'd appreciate you helping me out. Here's what we know, blah, blah, blah. Here's the dates. Here's the times. I had used a due date calculator from a pregnancy website to work backwards and find my conception date range, like the month I would have been conceived, right? Mm. So he brought that date around that month in there, you know. It's like, look, you know, it was pregnancy, blah, blah, blah. She's very happy. She's successful. Everything's wonderful. She's an author. No one wants to come to your Thanksgiving. No one wants to be in a will. We just need medical information, you know? <laughs> and um, she's having some real problems with her eyes. She may need surgery, et cetera. And so the guy was like, name doesn't sound familiar. Well, I knew a couple people with that name, but I don't think it could be because I was at basic training during that time. Uh, by the way, though, I have no family history of retina detachment and I don't have glaucoma. <laughs> so like, okay, bye. Hangs up. My husband's like, guy had a great voice. Super, super nice. Says he's not your father. So we went back to the drawing board, right? But we tried all the different options that I had at that, you know, all the other names and everything kept circling back to him. Like, it's got to be him. So like maybe six weeks later, my husband called him again. And uh, same deal. It's like, maybe, you know, some cousins or some relatives with the same last name from the area that would make sense. And then, you know, he, he says, look, when you first called, I was in shock. It was kind of hard to take it all in. I've thought about it. I've checked my calendar. I didn't leave for basic training for the army until two months after that date that, you know, my husband had given him. And I'm mm -hmm. glad you called. I had lost your number. I wanted to call you back. Mm -hmm. So he had looked me up online. And he had seen pictures of me. And um, and during that second conversation with my husband, he said he thought he might be my father. So he told us to look up his picture in an online college yearbook from where he went to school. Um, and then I saw that photo photo and I and I and I like instantly 
understood what it was like to look at someone and see my genes echoed in their face. You know, he, uh, I, so he, he had been an only, he was an only child. So I was a hundred percent sure this was my father just from seeing that photo. I didn't think, oh, maybe it's a brother or cousin, no cousins, no brothers, none of that stuff. Um, and then we started to email and I mailed him a packet of some photocopied childhood photos. We shared some jokes and we shared more emails. And, you know, I mentioned jokingly, cause I'd like to joke that, you know, I was several feet taller than everyone else I knew, you know? And, um, you know, at that time, I think that he was likely still very conflicted. Um, you know, there's a danger to his wife and daughters. He had a very happy marriage. He had two beautiful daughters who he treasured and loved them. And, you know, he took very good care of his family. He was, he, you know, um, and he later told me that immediately after my husband called the first time, he, he walked down the street to his best friend's house, who was also his attorney, for some advice. And the attorney's like, do not call back. Do not ever answer the phone. Do not ever talk to them again. Just walk away, right? But he didn't walk away. And I'm so grateful for that. Um, we made a plan to speak on the phone for the first time on Thanksgiving Day for some reason. So the time came, I went to a little room, I waited for the call. I was I was so nauseated with with anxiety, with fear. I just I almost threw up and I really I really literally almost threw up. I was I've never been that nervous in my life. Um, you know, and he called and we spoke and I heard his voice for the first time and I thought I know him. My bones know him. I knew him. You know, and I kept apologetically saying things like, "Well, if you did turn out to be my father, or you know, if you are my father," and he just very gently said, "Don, what are you forgetting to ask me?" And I was so flustered. I'm like, "I don't know." And he's like, "You didn't ask me how tall I am. You say you're taller than anyone you know. You didn't ask me how tall I am. Well, how tall are you? You know, he's like, I'm six foot four. So based on everything I've seen and what I remember from that time, I have no problem believing I'm your father. You're my daughter. I just started bawling. You know, it was wonderful and just, it was horrible and wonderful because the depth of the connection we immediately had, like, it still hurt because I think I could have had this my whole life, you know, and the could have, would have, and should have, or what get us, you know, and what I think I want to talk more about that in a little bit. But one of the things he told me on the phone was that he's like, oh, I've seen your pictures. Um, you have the blankety blank hair, this family name, right? This Irish name. You have this hair. And it was his mother's side of the family, this big, thick, Irishy, unruly hair. It goes in ringlets. If I'm at the beach, it's just all over the place. I look like I've been electrocuted. I am, and I, I, I used to be ashamed of it because I, no one I knew had it, you know? But I am so proud of that hair now. I stopped cutting my hair. It's really long. It's really big. I don't tame it. Like I curl it. I just let it do its thing. And it curls and these ringlets and I don't color it. I mean, it's just, it's, I wear it as big as I can now because it means something to me because it comes from somewhere. You know, it has an origin. My relatives have this hair. You know, it's not something to be hated. It's something that my people have, you know. So people who look like their families will never understand how bewildering it is to go through life not looking like anyone you ever lay eyes lay eyes on you know you know you you i think i think i may i know other people have said this we look for our faces and strangers faces you know i i used to look in magazines i'd be at sporting events and i'd look in crowds on television for any kind of genetic echo you know for the shape of a face to just move like my face you know, for a hand gesture to be the same something, 
It's so important, especially when we're never told the truth. When we first get that understanding of what the truth is, it's insanely important. We met a few months later, and uh, we flew up to visit them. He had uh, COPD and um, pretty advanced, you know, lung disease, and he didn't wasn't a big traveler anyway, which is really interesting because I'm not a big traveler at all. Like I really don't care to go anywhere. I have no wild desire to. I don't care. I'm very happy where I am, you know? And he was like that too. He didn't like to fly. I hate to fly. Um, just, there are so many similarities that are uncanny, you know? Um, when we were both 21, when we were each 21 years old, we, um, we were the first on the scene of an accident. Each two separate accidents, obviously when I was 21 and then when he was 21. And then we held a young woman in our arms while that woman passed away. We each had that experience at the same age and wow. stage in our life. Is that just uncanny strange, right? Yes. Yeah. So, but when we met, it was incredible. They invited us to stay with them. And I'm like, you sure I could be a serial killer, you know, <laughs> or you could be a serial killer. We got a serial killer in the family, apparently, you know, and that was a joke because we don't, it's not, we don't think there's any relation. Um, but our flight was delayed. He's like, no, you're staying. My children stay with me when they come to visit. And it was before COVID. And um, our flight was delayed by many, many hours. We were hours in this airport. And we're supposed to get in around like seven at night and then drive, rent a car and then drive to, to his house outside of the city where he lived. And um, he had this lovely meal. He had been telling me for days what he was cooking. He planned it. He loved to cook. Um, but we didn't get in till like two in the morning. And I had laryngitis. I had a very painful laryngitis. So I couldn't even talk. Like I had trouble speaking. Um, but we got in around 2.30 in the morning. So son of a gun, if they weren't, waiting up. The table was set. The candles were out. There was flowers on the table. And we sat down to this beautiful dinner in his dining room at 2.30 in the morning. Oh, that's so sweet. Really sweet, right? So sweet. Yeah. Uh, and his wife is stunning, super nice, great mom, great wife. She's like very devoted family member. Like, you know, uh, and I had been conceived some years before they even met. So it technically wasn't a threat to their marriage. And I, I was, I loved them so much at that point that I didn't want to be any kind of problem to them because I, I cared for them, you know? Um, and, and same, same, I have the same feelings with his daughters, you know? Um, but that weekend, like we saw family photos. I listened to stories. Um, I was, it quenched a thirst I had had my whole life. Um, just looking at all the pictures and stuff. And I saw myself and so many relatives down that, down that side, you know? Um, and I just remember just, we didn't go anywhere cause it was snowing and stuff and he, he wasn't good for him to go out in the cold. So we mostly just sat around and I just tried not to stare at him, you know, like I would occasionally leave the room to cry <laughs> just from joy and relief and understanding finally, you know? Um, and it was a wonderful weekend and I'll never forget it. Um, I met his two daughters at different times. One wasn't quite ready for a while. And then um, one was ready early and um, they were both nothing but absolutely gracious. They were incredible. You know, and we're a lot alike in some ways too, you know, like strange things. So the shortest of us, I think is 5'10". Um, mm-hmm. My youngest sister, half sister from my father's side, uh, was an incredible college basketball player. Um, we We can't stand... We all sat down to eat the first like meal together as a, and, and we all sat down and ordered this food or whatever. And, and, um, and all three of us quietly independently started picking out the onions from the dish. Like, Oh, you don't eat onions. No, we hate onions. I hate onions too. Just really weird stuff like that. You know, they're all introverted. They're kind of wry. 
they're they're like me. They don't have much need to like travel all over the world. Although I think I think both of them would travel. Um, they don't they they don't they're not really super social. We're kind of artsy. They're both very um, successful in their careers. You know, um, all three of us have master's degrees. You know, it's just strange, right? Um, and my my father was a school psychologist. He spent his life helping kids in this giant urban school um, system. And he helped them to get the testing they needed and accommodations they needed and the emotional support they needed to get through life. And he was apparently, I heard many stories from his friends and, and family members. He was just no holds bar when it came to these kids. He was ferocious, like in advocating for them. He, nobody messed with his kids, you know, that went for his school kids and that went for his children too. He was such a good dad, you know, protected them, loved them super stable, nurtured their talents. I mean, I really admire, I admire this family very much. And I admire how, as a result, my sisters moved through the world. You know, it's very nice. Um, oh, I got to go on vacation with them uh, the, that summer. I think it was the summer of 2018. And it was wonderful. I was super nervous. I thought I was going to destroy everything. Um, they have a little lake house, a lot of memories, a lot of family history. And I, and I got to witness you know, what their life had been like. And I just loved it. You know, um, he got sick a year later. Um, he was diagnosed with cancer and I went up and I spent a month, maybe five weeks there. And I, I received the gift of being able to drive him and my stepmom to doctor's appointments and to his radiation treatments, you know? So it kind of feels like we, we had maybe a year and a half together. Um, but we kind of crammed a life a whole life of like makeup father daughter stuff into maybe a very you know very short time very couple maybe four or five times I saw him my whole life we shared meals he supervised me doing yard work he bought me a pair of quote size 11 baby shoes I mean really sweet stuff <laughs> <laughs> we shopped for groceries we went to the library we had movie nights we listened to music together he shared some of the music he liked it was really wonderful we watched one of his favorite tv series together i just loved everybody he gave me life advice i cried in his arms once you know you know i don't know it's just wonderful he told me his philosophy about life and death and he said that he would um if he could he would try to send me a sign after he died because he knew he was dying you know we knew and if i wasn't careful he would come back and haunt me he said you know, and I'm like, please do, <laughs> do it. I dare you. <laughs> so, but he took pictures. He was really into. He was very artsy. So he was a psychologist, brainiac guy. Uh, but he had this very. Uh, he wrote poetry. He did um, needlework. He built a house. He he did built furniture. I mean, he was incredible. And he he took photographs of hands. So he photographed his mother's hands with his daughter's hands, and his wife with his daughters, and him with his kids. And and one thing right before he died is he um had his uh, his photographer daughter uh, take pictures of our hands, and those hands went in the casket with him, mm. um with his eyeglasses and pictures of his other daughters and stuff. And it was wonderful, you know, um. You know, I keep in touch with my 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 half sisters and my stepmom. I I we're I keep we're in touch very regularly, several times a week, and I try to call my um, stepmom every couple of weeks. I don't want to bug her too much, but I I do like to talk to her, and she likes to talk to me. You know, um, and we don't see each other because of COVID. And one thing I notice, it's really weird because I find that like I think I have some leftover like trauma echo stuff. Um, I I still find myself worried that I'm going to screw something up or be annoying, or be disliked, or be the one who causes a problem, you know? 
But so far, I don't think that's happened. And if it has, they're too sweet to tell me. They're very nice, you know. So it's just also strange. You know, my birth certificate father died three months later. And uh, I had the gift of being able to help care for him at the end of his life, too. So that was just a really big year, you know, a lot of closings, a lot of openings and closings at the same time, you know. I don't think that he could um, get past the fact that he knew I wasn't his. And because my family didn't talk about it, it just didn't get handled. You know, I just, just like didn't get handled. It's just like, we're never going to talk about this. And once the NPE truth came out, um, you know, I don't know. It just changed everything. You know, my sister emphasized in my birth certificate father's obituary that he never lied. And I had, I take issue with that. He did lie. And he lied in two ways. First about me and to me. And second, he had actually fathered and left a child uh, in Europe when he was stationed there in the Air Force. So I would periodically come across pictures of like old boxes of photos of him holding this little baby and pictures of this pretty young girl. No one talked about, I held, you know, I held the picture of who's this? Oh, that's nobody. (laughs) You know, it was his girlfriend and his baby. And, you know, he'd only say, oh, that was a baby. The soldiers in his group got to know and like, they're just really nice girl. And they all got to know and like them, you know, and I would test him on this several times throughout my life. And I was like, I even asked him once, is this his kid? because it had the same eyebrows, you know, and it's like, what? No, that's crazy. No, no, you're seeing things, you know, but my birth certificate father's sister, my aunt who knew since before I was born that I wasn't his says that my mother knew when she married my birth certificate dad, that this had happened. And so there he was raising me. And all the while he had a son who is an NPE whom he never contacted and never supported financially. So, you know, the layers of this could be, this could be a man who may be struggling with his NPE status, feeling his own genealogical bewilderment, wondering where he came home from over on the other side of the, the world right now, perhaps needing to know his own medical history. And he's biologically related to my half-sister I grew up with, and she has no interest in finding him. Um, and my dad had no interest, and my mom had no interest. And so it's kind of like proof that they really don't place any value in the NPE experience. You know, mm-hmm. I remember one yeah. time, like right before my sister and I had this unfortunate falling out, um, I went up to her house it was during the holidays and she had a friend over and the friend was very tiny, very petite woman. And the, f- the friend had made some joke about how small she was. And, and she said, well, I do have a, a half brother who's, who's um, taller than me or something. And my sister, I don't think she did it on purpose, but she said, oh, it's just a half sibling. They don't count. Mm. So just, just that. That vibe is in that family, you know, mm-hmm. and that they'll never understand is what makes me sad. Um, that my birth certificate was a lie makes me mad, mad, made me, I'm, I'm getting better. Uh, let's try to talk in past tense about this to keep it, to keep it like, to try to be in the moment here that I was lied to my entire life and would have been lied to until my death. It makes me furious that I was given improper medical information and ancestral information made me feel like I was worthless and that my intuition was like completely squashed made me feel just toxic, you know? And then I had my biological dad for 18 months and it made me feel heartbroken. So the task is to figure out now how to handle this stuff so I am not walking around toxic. The lies that surround us 
are so profound. You know, we're lied about genetic information. We're lied about our very identity. And the dynamics are so often dysfunctional. And we have to overcome this in order to live a healthy way because we're not, none of this was our fault. And we don't deserve to be living a toxic way just because it's the patterns that we learned. I think we all deserve to find a way out of that, you know? Um, and that's what I'm thinking a lot about lately. Um, I'm still trying to figure out forgiveness, but I'm really concentrating on it now. You know, I think like if I take an assessment of myself, like my ability to forgive has been maybe average at times, better than average as I've gotten older, but I'm actively working on it now. And it wasn't modeled for me, you know, um, we had a bunch of door slammers and people never said sorry. And, and, um, and that, and I, but I did recognize that wasn't healthy and I wanted to change. So, and I can't not help think about the other person's experience and any encounter I have with them. So even with this podcast, Lily, I'm thinking about your experience on the other side of this call and I'm wondering what it's like for you. And if there's something I can be aware of that would make it better for you, you know, that's just how I think, you know, mm-hmm. I, and, and, and I'm working on, letting it go because I don't want to be a bitter old woman and I don't want it to color everything I am now, you know, because I'm good. Like I'm, I am, I am not bad. I'm not bad. I am not, I am worth loving. I didn't feel like it all growing up, but I am, you know? Um, but, and, and I don't want the toxic, like I keep using that word toxic. I don't want it to be overdone. I don't want bad learned thoughts and opinions of myself and behaviors that I've learned to, 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 to use as coping mechanism to trickle down to generational behaviors that pass on to my children and their own children. So I'm trying to stop it, you know, but it's so hard. You can't just go, Oh, someone, someone fundamentally wrongs you and you're like, I forgive you. You just sign of the cross or whatever it is. And you're forgiven and then go on and not think of it again. Um, First of all, it's really hard to do that. And second of all, it's hard to do that if you don't get like a like a legit attempt at an, a legit apology, which I think is something most of us will never get because of the nature of the people who create these situations. You know, a lot of them are not enlightened or even basically thoughtful in any way. A lot of them are desperate. They're selfish. They're troubled. Or all three. Um, you know, do you know, I... I, I I've been thinking a lot about apologies and um, let's see if I can remember. I think a good apology has four components. You name the thing you did. You say sorry for the thing you did. You show a desire to make the thing right if possible. And you name a way that you might do it or you ask for like how you might help. And then you ask for forgiveness. So you're like, you say, I'm so sorry. Not I'm sorry you feel this way which is what mm-hmm. we get. I'm sorry you feel this way. Cause that's just another way of saying, I don't feel good because you're mad at me. It's discomfort and regret that they feel bad, not a demonstration that they actually regret anything. Right. You know? So I'm so sorry I did this to you. I'm sorry. I kept your biological family from you your entire life. And you missed out on meeting your father and your father's relatives and that you made medical decisions without knowing your true medical history. That was selfish of me and wrong. Like if we could all hear that, right. Yes. Um, then there, you know, uh, <sighs> I know this is so huge. I could never make it up to you, but I'd like to try. What can I do that will best help you now? How can I show that I'm committed to your healing? That would be lovely, right? And then in a perfect world, 
They'd ask for forgiveness and then give you a chance to say, I forgive you out loud. This is so healing. But we don't get that. You know, um, this would go a long way to help us. Don't you think? Oh, completely. Can I, can I copy everything you just said and make just like a little episode just on here's let's do it. Here's how you say, sorry, here's the script. We all write scripts to, to talk to our biological families. Here's the script for after you've hosed your NPE kid for a lifetime, this is what you say. And even if you can't feel it yet, even if you act it, the action of doing it will help them start to heal. You know, I don't know. I look at it like this. So like I've got, um, I've got some chronic issues. I had Lyme disease and it hit some of my nerves and, and I have to be very disciplined about how I treat my body now. So I have to be super disciplined about working out and stretching. I have to keep muscles from atrophying. I have to keep them supple. I have to keep them strong. I have to eat right. So I have to make like, I don't know, 20 tiny decisions every day today in order for my body to not hurt next week. You know, and I think of living with this discipline I do, which I'm going to need to do for the rest of my life. If I think of I have to do it my whole life, it would be completely overwhelming. So I'm trying to just think of what I need to do today. Okay, so you're just going to eat right today. You're going to work out today. You're going to not do this today. You don't drink alcohol and don't do this. And, you know, in order to be well next month, next year, and in 20 years. And I feel like the practicing of the forgiveness is something like that. It's a practice. I am not good at it. I do it 20 times today, so I won't be a bitter old lady in 20 years. So I'll be able to enjoy the life that I have now after this lifetime of being completely perplexed my entire life. I'm not perplexed anymore. I do have answers, you know, but um, some days I suck. (laughs) If you catch me on a bad day, I can tell the story in a completely different way, in a mean way that illustrates like very harsh details of what really went on. But I'm choosing to not do that today because it's better for me and it's better for the people who are listening either as witnesses to my story or in a quest to heal their own pain. You know, I'm making a choice to consciously orient myself toward forgiveness very often because I want to feel good. I don't want my energy to be so bad that I don't bless others that I come across, you know? So hopefully I'll get to a point where I don't like have to dwell on it or don't have to actively do it or have to think about it. But right now I still do, but I'm doing it, you know? Um, So one of the things that I do, I'm a creative writer and I write books and essays and stories and I publish them, Um, but I also teach creative writing. And my latest gig this last couple of years is autopathography, which is telling the story of um, an illness story and how your illness or, you know, traumatic event or psychological uh, struggles um, or any kind of traumatic event affects your life. and so could you like write about an NPE revelation? I believe NPE fully um, falls under the autopathography subgenre. You know, it's, it's the influence of a disease. And I feel like our families are diseased, you know, and it causes a type of disability because we have trouble. Some of us have a lot of trouble, like, with relationships and trusting people. Because if you hear that what the truth, if you keep hearing that the truth isn't the truth, then you stop believing that the truth is the truth and then you have trust issues, right? Mm -hmm. You know, psychological um, stories fully fall under the autopathography umbrella. So, but these stories, to heal from them, we tell them. And telling our stories 
and healing from trauma is a two-person activity. So it's super interesting that I'm talking about this today. And um, do you remember what you said in the very beginning of this podcast? How I want you to share about what you're doing for healing? No, no, no. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, uh, I, and I won't remember the words exactly, but when you, f- you, we f- you first started recording. So if everyone rewinds now and listens to the very beginning, when you mm-hmm. welcome everyone, you mm-hmm. said something about this, which is really uncanny and interesting. You know, um, healing from trauma is a two-person activity. It takes action. There's the storyteller, there's the witness, and it's a dance of two people. And both people are contributing to the healing. So the act of witnessing or reading or listening to someone's trauma story heals the storyteller and can also heal the listener. And the act of telling the story heals the storyteller and also contributes to the witness's healing in some way. Even if the witness does not have the same issues as the storyteller, the generosity of the act of witnessing is what heals, which is why I believe we NPEs can heal from such a life-altering pain and identity crisis and um, when we choose to connect each other and when we choose to tell our stories, to refuse to keep that dirty little secret, you know, because we may never have our families on board in participation with this healing, but we do have each other, which is why Lily, your podcast is so amazing. <laughs> you know? Um, and this is explains why I'm getting so much out of it, out of listening is because you, like you just said, that's, that's yeah. helping with my healing. Listening in general <laughs> to everyone's podcast, right? Yes. Yes. And you're participating in their healing. It's a, it's a two way superconductor. I love it. I love it. I'm all about it. You know, um, you know, not everyone needs to, you know, I, I encourage people to write their stories. Um, I'm actually designing a, a class right now on writing your NPE story. Um, and it's going to be an online class. And I think I'm going to make it either four to eight weeks, but probably a four week class. And, and I encourage everyone to write their stories, even if you don't think you'll ever publish it, even if you're not a writer, even if you're a crappy writer, even if you've never written before. I think the act of telling the story and collecting your thoughts like you would on a telling this podcast, it's just as important to do it in writing. You know, mm-hmm. and then getting a witness is what heals us. Because it's the opposite of how we we learn to function, right? You know, we we learn to function within the central lie that must remain hidden at all costs. Mm-hmm. So telling our stories in this way is I think it's like bonus it's extra healing it's it's supercharged because we're breaking this lifetime of toxic behavior we don't have to live in the shadow of the secret about who we once were you know now how can people participate in this class or find out more about this well i want to know okay so uh you can find me in a couple of ways um you can find my website i have a couple websites i have a author website and then i have a a writing website. So my writing website is whistletreewriters.com, like a whistle and a tree and writers.com. And then my author website, which is a nice, easy way to contact me, is dawndaviesbooks.com. D-A-W-N-D-A-V-I-E-S books.com. And I'm also on Instagram. What's that? uh, At whistletreewriters and at dawnlandia. Dawnlandia is my regular Instagram and whistle tree writers is where I have like inspirational writing things for people who might be in writing slumps or, you know, want to share their work or struggles and stuff like that. Mm, I love these. I'm going to add all of these to the show description, which I hope everyone will be able to read. Some people say they can't see the 
description or the notes. But oh, it's about. Yeah. They can always just rewind this portion right here as well. Mm-hmm. Whistletreewriters.com. Okay, got them. I got them. <laughs> uh, Don, thank you so much. I could I could listen to you forever. I already know this episode is going to be something that I will be putting on repeat. Oh, well, you have to do it for me because I have trouble listening to myself when I do podcasts or do interviews and stuff. Like I can't hear my voice. I hate my voice. So I probably, I'm going to be afraid to listen to it. Maybe I'll listen to it. (laughs) You have to. Okay. I will. I will. (laughs) This was great. And Thank you. Thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for sharing all of this today. Well, you're welcome. And thank you. These stories are here for us to identify with. If you are an NPE and would like to share your story, email npestories at gmail.com. You do not have to give any identifying information. If you are an NPE and would like to share your story, I'd like to hear from you. Subscribe to this podcast to hear more. Come heal with us. Come heal with us.